Fantastic. Have a seat. It's great. An honor to be here, obviously. Um, you know, when Pastor Jack says we've been working together for 20 years, the real truth of the matter is I've been working with him. Uh, he's been gracious enough to, to, to take me along and, and to be part of what he was doing uh, when he was leading this. This, um, the missions department of our great movement and he allowed me to take a region on and things have just grown, grown from there. But I, I love being here tonight because I tell you, it's so great, isn't it, to be amongst like-minded people who are interested in something more than just getting ahead, right? How many know that the average person wants to get ahead? They don't necessarily want to leave a legacy. But I'm in a group of people tonight. I'm in a room full of people who don't want to be conformed into the, uh, uh, the way of this world, but transformed, and we, want, we don't want to just spend the rest of our life focused on upgrades and experiences, right? How can I upgrade my phone, upgrade my wardrobe, upgrade my car, upgrade my house, upgrade my spouse? Well, that's what some think anyhow, right? But, uh, but we're not interested in getting ahead. We're interested in making a difference. And that's why I love being in this room tonight. And, and let me tell you something about when you're in a room, people like, like this. Um, you're frontline people. Right? Uh, you're on the edge, and the thing about being on the edge is when you're on the front line, any soldier on the front line is more likely to take a bullet than a soldier or than a person who's carrying five kilometers, you know, behind the line. When you go on the line, there's things flying around, there's bullets with your name on them, aimed at you. There's all kinds of things coming your way. And, and I'm so glad that I'm in this room and with you tonight, because I've got something I really honestly believe God has laid on my heart that's going to help you to stand. Because Paul said, when you've done everything else, stand. And we need to stand for righteousness. We need to stand for the kingdom of God. We need to stand in the gap. We need to stand for the gospel. Having done all to stand, stand. And, uh, you know, I love this idea that the work is great, the, the time is short, the consequences of our labors are infinite. And the way to move ahead in the kingdom of God is to learn to stand. I'm going to unpack the scripture in just a moment, and I'm going to show you something which I think is mind-blowing. Um, it's, uh, it's a message from our resurrected and ascended Lord, Jesus himself, who from his, his position in heaven speaks directly to a group of Christians who are on the front line. Now what he tells them is so significant that when faced with incredible opposition, they were able to stand. Now, I've got to tell you, Jesus knew what it was to stand, right? We all appreciate that. He stood in the... In the uh, uh, in front of the cross. I mean, he, he took that whole thing on his chin. He, he stood in the moment of temptation. He knew what it was to stand. And he told these people something that so moved them, so affected them that they were able to stand. In fact, I've got a, a, a transcript here from a historical writing that the people who heard what I'm about to read you heard and this was the effect it had on their life. So we'll go to the end and look at the effect. Then I'm going to come back and I'm going to read to you what it was they heard. 
But let me tell you how it affected their life. These six men, these six Christian men, were brought in and stood before the proconsul of Rome. This is 100 AD, a few years before that. And they were asked by the proconsul, they were directed by the proconsul, will you worship the emperor? And the men said, we have committed no theft. We pay our taxes. We honour the emperor, but we worship the Christ. The proconsul said, you have 30 days to go away and think about this. Think about your families. Think about your futures. Then come back in 30 days. And if you don't change your mind, you choose the sword. To which the men said, Sir, we don't need your 30 days. We worship the risen Christ alone. <laughs> to which he said, Since you have refused, You'll be put to the sword. You choose death. To which they reply, and this will blow your mind. In fact, this will blow your mind. Wait, wait till I tell you what they heard. That's going to blow your mind even more. To, to which they replied, right? God is so unfair. No. <laughs> to, which, to which they replied, but, but, but there's more. There's more. You need to go and talk to them as well. No. To which they replied, thanks be to God. It's a matter of historical fact that Romans were amazed at these Christians' ability to approach death, their calmness, their lack of bitterness towards their oppressor, their, their lack of angst towards their, their God who should have saved them, their capacity to stand. Having done all, they stood. And we're about to hear what it was that Jesus said to them that gave them that steel in their backbone. And, and I, my, I just got a thing in me tonight that says this, that says they heard what he had to say. And there are people in this room tonight that are going to hear what Jesus has got to say. Because the key to missions, folks, because missions is on the front line, right? The key to missions is to be able to stand in the day of attack and having done all to stand. Before we turn to the scriptures and read that, and I read to you what it was they heard, I want to just encourage you or invite you to um, join with me, if you would please, uh, in in interceding for the nations of the world. Um, I'm raising up an army across the the nation of a thousand plus intercessors, a thousand plus people who are going to pray for the unreached people groups of the world. Now, to give you some idea, right, of what this looks like, we're in Australia, and they tell me in Australia that we're something like, there's something like 15% evangelical Christians, right? So let me put that into math for you. If every Christian in Australia prayed for seven different people, seven, everybody in Australia, every single man, woman, and child could be prayed for. All it takes is every Christian to pray for seven people. Well, you probably know seven people. <laughs> if you don't, you should meet seven people before you leave tonight. It's not that hard to know seven people, right? Okay, so if I was to transpose that mathematical equation, say to the Brahmin people of India, and ask you 
What do you think every evangelical, not Pentecostal, but just evangelical, Bible-believing Christian, how many would each Bible-believing Christian in that people group have to pray for to have every person in that people group prayed for? Now, in Australia, it's seven. And the Brahmin people, what do you think it might be? Maybe they're, you know, double behind women. Maybe it's 14. No, not quite. Well, maybe they're a long way behind. Maybe it's 10 times. Maybe it's 70. No, nowhere near it. I'll tell you. I could build the tension for the next 30 minutes. 120,000. Now, you'll never meet 100. You'll never have a clue of what 120,000 people looks like. You know what I'm saying. And yet that's, that's the difference. That's mind-blowing, right? Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send harvesters into the harvest field. You know, most of us in this room probably know the Lord's Prayer, right? In the Lord's Prayer. But it, Jesus didn't say pray the Lord's Prayer. He said after this manner pray. It was, a, it, it was a, a principle, a model for prayer. But he did say, when you pray, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth harvesters into the harvest field. The Lord, the commander in chief told us to do that. But how many do it? And why don't we do it? We, we know if you're a pastor, like, you know, I've been for the last 35 years, you're constantly praying for people, you know, to fill the, the roster next Sunday. <laughs> oh, God, we need more people in the children's ministry again. You know? We need more people, Lord, on the whatever it is. Constantly praying that prayer because it's a felt need. We're constantly praying, Jesus, you know, help me through my life. And Jesus says, I've died for you. It's now your turn to help me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. It's your time to help me. And so I, I just want to ask you if you'd take five minutes once a month to pray for the unreached people groups of the world, and I'm going to send you an email, or Paul and Deb, more than a point, but on my behalf, <laughs> will send you an email. Um, that reminds you, will give you an unreached people group. If, if, if you can open your cameras up, all right, and take a picture of me, all right, now you've done that, I'm kidding. Uh, scan the QR code here and put in your details and then you'll get a, um, an email uh, in the first week of the month uh, that will remind you to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth, to send forth harvests into the harvest field. <laughs> What we need is a reminder, that's all. No one's opposed to it. No one's going to come to me in a way and say, I'm not going to do that. Everybody wants to do it. We just, you know, we just get busy, right? And we need to be reminded. So allow me to do that. Allow me to remind you and join with me and maybe a thousand or more others as we, we pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth harvesters. Because when there's one to 120,000, we need harvesters, folks. We need people who can stand. Okay, we're going to read from Revelations chapter 3. Father God, the words that you spoke to this group of believers who are on the cutting edge of missions. Lord, who are taking the gospel into a dark place. Father God, I pray the words that you spoke to them 2,000 years ago, you would speak to us in this room again tonight. They would hear the Spirit speak as we gather around the word in Jesus' name. And everybody says, amen, amen. The three things I want you to note as I read this, we're going to discuss it, I'll debrief it a little bit, but there are three things. I want you to note, number one, 
a door, number two, a key, and number three, a pillar, right? A door, a key, and a pillar. We're going to read together. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Of course, this is um, John on the Isle of Patmos, and Jesus is speaking directly through the angel, and he's writing it down. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has, I said, door key pillar, the one who has the key of David, big deal, the one who has the key of David, what he opens, no man can close, and what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you have obeyed my word, and you did not deny me. God has a wide open door of opportunity for these people. Now, these people were in a, in a, in a crisis situation. Right? They were persecuted by the authorities of their day. Yet, God was going to open a door that no man could close. Now, let me tell you something about open doors in the Bible. Whenever you hear about an open door, it's always speaking about the advancement of the gospel. It's always taking light to where there is dark. Paul said, uh, behold, before me was a wide open door of opportunity, though the adversaries were many. What was he referring to? He was referring to taking the gospel to where it's not. He was talking about that cutting edge of mission, the wide open door. Who in this room wants some more wide open doors? If you want some more wide open doors in your life, I encourage you to lean in and listen and, 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 and try to pick up what Jesus, the Spirit of God, is saying here to the church. He said, I know your deeds and you have little strength. Your puny, uh, one translation puts it. And what he's fundamentally saying is this, is that these people were suffering, right? These people were downtrodden, rejected, cast out by the culture of the day, put down. He says, you're suffering, but you've stood. You've hung in there. And you might be here tonight, and you might sometimes wonder if people are actually listening. You might sometimes feel a bit rejected. You might put, a, you might put your best foot forward to spread the gospel and then wonder, hello, is this making any difference? Is anybody out there, does anybody know that I'm here with the timeless, incredible truth of the Lord Jesus Christ? And what he's saying to these people is this, is that the way you handle closed doors will determine the open door I give you. Did you get that? Because they're facing closed doors, right? All the way around you is closed doors. You want to spread the gospel in Rome, but the, the Roman authorities are persecuting you. The Roman authorities are killing some of you. You want to spread the gospel, but where you want to spread it, the door is closed, how many know that's the definition of missions right there? I want to spread the gospel into closed doors. How does the door get open? The way you handle the closed door. This is the message, right? This is what, some, this is what God, I believe, wants to say to some people here in this room right now who are facing closed doors. Now, I don't know what that closed door might look like. It might be a closed door of business. And maybe, you know, we're talking about making a faith promise. And you know, I was going to make a faith promise, but there was a closed door. I was believing for a stream of income from that particular source, but that door is closed. 
You know, maybe some of you are uh, uh, perhaps not as far along, you know, where you thought you might be at this point of your life. You know, I thought I'd have my own home or I thought, I thought I'd be married or what I thought I'd have care. But there just seems to be so many closed doors. I wonder what doors right now are closed in your life. And can I say to you tonight, the way you handle closed doors will determine what, God, what, what doors God's open what doors God opens for you. Because the one thing I can assure you about the human condition, the one thing that makes us completely different from animals, <laughs> how many know that if an animal suffers, they'll often choose to put the thing down, right? I mean, you've got a horse or something and it's lame in the leg and the vet says, there's nothing we can do. Let's put it down. You got a dog, and the dog's sick, and you can't. You know, there's nothing they can do. And they say, "Oh well, the, the most, you know, the most compassionate, the most humane, humane thing you can do is put the dog down." How many know they don't say that to people? <laughs> Fortunately, right? You got a gummy leg. Oh, let's put him down. <laughs> oh, you're sick. Oh well, let's put him down. <laughs> and there's a good reason. One, of course, is we're created in the image of God. And the other is this: is that suffering when attached to the human condition, always has a purpose, right? When you attach suffering to an animal, there's no purpose, so you put the animal down. But when you attach suffering to the human condition, there is always a purpose. Where there's disappointment, where there's frustration, there's always a purpose. Where there's a closed door, there's always a purpose. How you respond to that closed door will determine the door that God opens. I had two very close pastor friends of mine um, in this last season. And, uh, you know, there were doors slammed closed in their face. You know, in some instances, I'm sure that their noses were splattered. The doors were slammed so so fast and, and, and so significantly in their face. And you could argue, uh, and some of you in this room would, would know the names if I, w- if I was to share them. Uh, and you would argue that in, in both cases, it was, it was unfair. It was wrong. What happened to them shouldn't have happened, but it did. And I've observed both my brothers. And one has been looking for people to blame, has constantly being a victim and, and angry and the other one went home and broke bread in his lounge room with his wife and worshiped God one responded to the closed door a certain way and the other responded to the closed door another way and today one has had this incredible door of opportunity open to them and they're affecting this nation. And the other one is still rolling around their house, whinging and complaining and carrying on. How you respond to closed doors determines the God, the, the God opening doors in your life. And, and I'm convinced that, that there's a key to missions right here. Because you talk to anybody who goes to the front line. And what do you see at the front line, folks? You see closed doors. That's the definition of the front line, right? I mean, you're, you're in a closed country. You're, you're in a foreign place. And, and, and Christianity is, is not even on, uh, Christmas isn't even on the agenda there. 
And you talk to people and you feel like, man, everyone's so closed here. No one's talking to me. Nobody's interested. There's a closed door. How you respond to closed doors determines the doors that God will open to you. So how do you turn suffering or closed doors into open doors? What's, what's, what's the key here? I'll read it again, verse, verse 7. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key. I said the door, the opportunity, the key, the key of David. What he opens, no man can close. And what he closes, no man can open. What is the key? Let me talk to you about the key for a moment. Because the key equals authority, okay? I got my car key in my pocket. I can go to my car I can lock it, I can unlock it, I can drive it wherever I like because I got the key and the key means I have the authority. I got my house key and the house key means I can unlock my home, I can walk in, I can walk back out, I can lock my home, I can do whatever I like because I got the key. I have the authority. Key always equals authority. And who has the key? I think this is the key to life. The key to life is to know who has the key. And who has the key? Jesus. He says, I have the key. Now, this is, this is like absolutely paramount. This is cornerstone to the whole thing. Because there's something in us, is there not, that likes to think that we've done it ourselves. You know, I built a great church or... I've got a great ministry. Oh, I've paid the price and I, you know, I, I did it my way. I've, I've walked a million miles. I, I, I've tried and I've, I've tried and I've, I've bit off more than I could chew, but I hung in there and I saw it through to the end. There's something in us that, you know, kind of pats ourselves on the back a little bit for what we've done, right? <laughs> what we've got to recognize is that I had no authority over who I'd be born to, when I was born, where I would be born, the gifts and talents that I have, all that stuff was outside of my control. doesn't matter how hard I work. doesn't matter how much money I, I make. It doesn't matter what my resume looks like. I have no control over that stuff. You see, because he holds the key. It's his grace. This is the key. The key is in recognizing his authority in your life. The key is suffering under authority. That's the key. And not trying to think, well, you know, that lot's unfair and they're not interested in blaming everybody else. The key is to recognize that the door is locked, not from your side of the door, but from his side of the door. And if he opens the door, ain't no man going to close it. And if he locks the door, I don't care how hard you hit and pound, that door isn't opening. Because he holds the key. He has the authority. Now, it's not some kind of, you know, naked authority where he's just coming and, and taking control. No, no. You know why he has the authority? He has the authority because he's the author. And the word author and authority have this, come from the same root origin. You see, when you're the author of something, you have authority over it. Right? I mean, it, just down the road here, over the past few nights, half a million people have gone and listened to Tay-Tay sing about shaking it off and other things, apparently. Now, I don't know a lot about it, but you've got to ask yourself, 
why do half a million people want to do that? Because <laughs> you could find just as good-looking young woman who can sing just as good, who sings the same songs, and she's not going to fill Penrith Lee's club. Do you know why? Because they're not her songs. Because she doesn't have authority. You see, Tay-Tay, like her or hater, has authority over the songs she writes because she's the author. When you're the author, you have authority. They say that Jesus spoke with authority. Well, it's no wonder because he's the author of life. When you're the author of the thing, you have authority over it. I remember being, this is funny, so I remember being at a youth conference years ago <laughs> and um, Pastor Wayne Alcorn, who's a very good friend of mine, I've worked with him for over 40 years, so I can say anything I like. I'm married to his sister. <laughs> he was, he was going to teach this new song to this, you know, this youth gathering. And this new song went something like this, Fear not for... Okay, some of, some of you oldies know this, right? So this was a new song. <laughs> anyway, uh, we had this guest preacher, and Wayne and him have an argument. No, the song goes like this. The song goes like that. Wayne says, no, the song goes like this. And, and, and the other guy said, well, hang on a minute. It was Phil Pringle. He said... Uh, I wrote the song. <laughs> to, which, to which Wayne said, song goes like that. Because <laughs> you can't argue with the author. Because the author has authority. That's why when you walk in what God has authored for your life, you have authority. But when you try to walk in someone else's shoes, you're like some person singing you know, shake it off down here at the Premier's Lease Club and you're lucky if 200 people show up as opposed to half a million because that's the difference between having authority and not having authority. You drive off in my car and see how it goes for you because <laughs> that's the difference between having authority and not having authority. When I say it's about recognising who has authority, what you've got to appreciate is that he doesn't come in like some naked power-grabbing dictator and take authority over your life. He's the author of your life. He has authority over your life. And when you recognize that, and when you say, okay, I submit to the authority of Christ, that's the key to the open door. You see, he allows closed doors, folks. Because you don't know how strong you are until you test your muscle. And you don't know how selfless you are until you don't get your own way. You don't know how patient you are and, until you're frustrated. You, you don't know how, how fragile life is until what you've built your life on is jeopardized. That's why the psalmist could say, the Lord is the light of my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Because the Lord was the light of his life. Whatever else is the light of your life will cause fear and suffering to come. But when he is the light and he is the authority, you can then respond correctly. You can then respond with grace. You see, what we have to understand is that he's going to open doors. And I started off by reading you know, an account of these Philadelphians who uh, many of them were, were um, martyred for the gospel. And uh, God did open doors, you know. I mean, they felt like they were flogging a dead horse to use an Australian colloquialism. But um, they felt like they were putting their best foot forward and getting nowhere. 
But of course, over the passage of time, Rome became a Christian city. And some of you have heard of the Roman Catholic Church. (laughs) You know what I mean? Where did it start? When God said, I will open a door that no man will close, God did exactly what he said he would do. And the reason he opened the door for the people who brought that message was because they responded under his authority. And nothing's changed, folks, in 2,000 years. Some of you in this room right now are facing closed doors and you respond recognizing his authority over your life and God's going to open a door in your future that no man can close. Oh, one last thing and and I'll I'll be done. I I mentioned the pillar. Uh, Verse 12. All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God and they'll never have to leave it. And, and I will write on them the name of my God and they'll be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem when it comes down from heaven, from my God and I will write on them my new name. You see, let me tell you another thing these people understood. They understood the eternal consequence of their reward. They fully comprehended that what we're going through right now is like simply the terminal at the airport. This is not my home. I'm passing through, right? It might be a little inconvenient. It might not be as comfortable as I might like. It might not have all the trappings that others have or I desire. But you know something? It doesn't matter because this isn't my final resting place. I'm on my way to something greater. And he reminded them of the ultimate destiny of their purpose. And I want you to understand the eternal consequence, not just of the wide open doors of opportunity that God will bring to you, but the eternal significance that that will mean for you when God himself writes his new name upon you. And you get a place of honor in the new Jerusalem that comes from heaven. You see, when you get your eyes where they belong, all of a sudden what goes on around about, it's so much easier than bring it under the authority of Christ because you know it's a passing phase and that is my eternal destiny. And they understood that and they were able to stand. You see, the degree that we appreciate that our God um, himself Every religion believes that God has the key, right? Every religion believes that. But you know what makes ours different? Ours is the only religion where we acknowledge that our God was locked out. He knocked on the door in the garden. He said, I don't want to do this. Can I get out of here? Anyone ever said that? I've had a gut full of this. I want to get out of here. I can't stand this anymore. I want out. Well, Jesus himself said that. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to be on the outside of a locked door. And he did that, why? So that he could empathize with your experience about on being on the outside of a locked door. And what's his response? Well, this isn't fair. This isn't right. I only get my, my you know, I only get, get my fair share. No, it wasn't. Not my will, but he understood the key. He understood the key. And what was the result? (laughs) An open door. (laughs) An open door of salvation, which probably everybody in this room has walked through. You see, 
when I say that this is the key, you've got to appreciate this was the experience of Jesus himself. And if you're facing a locked door, if you're facing a frustration, if there's some closed doors in your life, you need to know that you have a heavenly saviour who knows exactly what you're going through because he himself has faced locked doors. But he understood the key. And maybe tonight you go, well, okay, I understand the key. So you respond, well, Father, I, I step out and it's your authority. I give it to you. And he says, if you do that, I'm going to open a door over your life and into your future that no man can close. Let's stand together and pray. Thank you, Father. Lord, you know um, the significance, the influence, the consequence of everybody in this room. Lord, and I, I know in my heart that there are people, Lord, that have come to this conference <laughs> with locked doors, with closed doors, with challenges, a ministry challenge, family challenge, and there's a closed door. And you've perhaps been a little agitated about it, been a bit frustrated. Maybe there's been a little anger rise. God's speaking to you tonight. And he's saying, I'm going to open for you a door that no man can close. And how you respond to the closed door will determine the open doors that I lay before you. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the front line of missions. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and we're just in a bit of a reflection, we're going to allow the Spirit of God to just come and, 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 um, and validate His Word in our hearts. So come Holy Spirit and bring that Word and make it mine tonight. If, if that's your prayer, if you can, as I speak, almost identify the closed door, then I can assure you right now, there's a wide open door about to come. Would you just take your hands and put them in front of your face? And I just pray a prayer of faith, God, to feed you right now. That you'd be able to stand. That you'd be able to stand. That you'd be able to stand in the moment of temptation. That you'd be able to stand in the moment of onslaught. That you'd be able to stand in the moment of attack. That you'd be able to stand in the moment of disappointment. That you'd be able to stand. Having done all that you'll stand. And then will come the wide open door of opportunity. Father, you see right now, right across this room, as people are responding to the word, they're responding, Father, to your spirit in this house. Father God, afresh as we begin this conference, Lord, we bring ourselves under your authority. And we recognize, Lord, that, that you close doors. But then, Lord, you open even wider ones. So, Father God, we submit under your authority now to the closed door. And we look forward with faith in our hearts to the eternal consequence of the open door that you're going to give for so many people in this room 
for the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you and thanks for your time tonight.